0: Hello and welcome again to the Land and Climate podcast. My name is Alistair McEwen, and in this episode I spoke to Bart Elmore, an environmental historian at Ohio State University, about his book Seed Money, which documents the growth of American agrochemical giant Monsanto. We're all still
1: exposed to this compound. And in that document, the executive who's trying to decide, well, what should we do with this compound now that we know that it's so toxic? He literally handwrites. He says, well, maybe we should just sell the hell out of this as long as we possibly can and do nothing else. I began by asking Bart to explain who Monsanto was and why they were so significant. I came to this story about Monsanto indirectly. I was writing a book on the history of Coca-Cola which started in my hometown, a book called Citizen Coke. And that book traced out the ingredients that were in Coca-Cola and, and tried to figure out how Coke was getting all of their various things like sugar. And caffeine was one of those really tricky questions, like where did they get their caffeine from? And it turned out it was this little company. And, you know, when we think about the early 1900s, very small company called Monsanto in St. Louis, Missouri, 1901 when this company was founded. And I went there to St. Louis uh, to see what was up, you know, what could I find? And I was actually given access, permission to use the corporate records that were housed at Washington University in St. Louis. And for me, as a business historian or somebody who writes about business and the environment, I thought, what a opening! I want to come back and do a book on the history of Monsanto. And that became this book, Seed Money, which is a history of Monsanto from start to finish. And to your point, you know, for me, I think I knew a little bit. I think as some of us do about Monsanto. Given its reach in agriculture, it had become, by the end of the 20th century, the largest seller of seeds, genetically engineered seeds in the world. And that was kind of a remarkable power that it had to shape food systems and the chemicals being used on them. I wanted to understand how we got there. How did this company get this kind of outsized power on our global food system, given that it started out basically by selling saccharin, an artificial sweetener, and caffeine to Coca-Cola. So for me, it was like a perfect arc to tell. Now, you mentioned, uh, and when we were conversing, Bayer buys them in 2018. And that was happening as I was writing the book. So the stakes became even higher as I saw this massive German life sciences company you know, that was in the ag space, but was really expanding with this purchase of Monsanto. Wow, what was gonna happen next? And I finished the book right after that merger happened and all sorts of chaos unfolded.
0: Can you take us through a little bit of the history of its development and kind of its expanding influence over the last century? And then maybe perhaps give us just some of the little anecdotes around dicamba, glyphosate, et cetera. It wasn't really in agriculture at all at the beginning. It was doing what they called
1: specialty chemicals. And this is 1901. The United States chemical industry is way behind. Europe is out in front. It's the Germans. This great irony, I thought, of the book was that the whole point of Monsanto was to like be free of companies like Bayer and BASF, these German powerhouses that were the leaders in organic chemistry in the early 1900s. And that's what Monsanto was trying to do, be like a U.S. kind of homegrown, made in America chemical company. Uh, of course, at the end, they're going to be gobbled up by this German empire. But anyway, they start out in that vein. And really the wars, World War I and World War Two, are key because they they basically cut off our supplies in the U.S. from these imports of chemicals, which gives an opportunity for these fledgling kind of startups. If you can think of Monsanto that way, don't think of them now that way to grow. And that's what happens. Post-World War I, they're starting to really diversify into a wide variety of chemicals. Plastics is one of the areas they go into. Of course, Um, they're going into all sorts of things in pharmaceuticals. And then ultimately, yes, by the time we get to World War II, we especially see ag becoming an area where they're seeing tremendous opportunities, both in terms of You know pesticides and insecticides, but also in terms of herbicides that can kill weeds. The dawn for them is kind of the late 1940s. They begin producing the chemicals that would later be used in what we know as Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. These chemicals have wonky names, 245T and 24D, quite toxic chemicals. For me, this was a slightly personal story. My father served in Vietnam, and I knew about the history here of the contaminants that were in those compounds. Monsanto was the largest supplier of these herbicides, which, just to be clear, were being used to clear jungle environments so the U.S. military could more effectively fight in the Vietnam War. But it had these really toxic, not only ecological consequences for wiping out vegetation, but it had this chemical compound dioxin that can cause a whole host of health problems, one that is actually linked to a cancer my father has. Can we prove that these are all links? It's one of the hard parts of the book. And As somebody who studied medicine and biochem, I try to be very careful about what we can know and what we can't know. But we know that these compounds are particularly problematic. And that leads to your nice kind of segue to what happened next. Well, okay, Agent Orange, the whistle's blown. People are very concerned about it. Uh, The U.S. military backs away from this. And Monsanto is looking for a new product. And they create in the 1970s Roundup, uh, active ingredient glyphosate, which becomes the world's most popular herbicide. It's the first billion dollar herbicide weed killer ever made. The problem is that by the 1980s and 1990s, a lot of American oil companies are beginning to diversify into chemical manufacturing. And we see Exxon and Chevron and all these other companies starting to basically gobble up the petrochemical feedstocks that, as Monsanto put it, they were giving away to Monsanto to make all their compounds. It was all coming from fossil fuels. And so you can see Monsanto by the 80s saying, uh-oh, we're in trouble. What are we going to do? And that's when they start switching to biotech and becoming a seed company. They say, you know what? This new era of genetic engineering looks really promising. Let's kind of pivot from being a mainly a chemical company. They're kind of out in front in some ways. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of other companies competing. But by 1996, Monsanto introduces the first really successful and large-scale commercially available uh, genetically engineered crops. Roundup-ready crops. In the years 1996, we're going to see this become soybeans, corn, cotton, and this widespread adoption of these crops that are genetically engineered to tolerate, you know, no surprise here, the blockbuster herbicide that they're also selling. So they're making kind of money in two ways, by selling that herbicide, but also selling the seeds that make these crops tolerate that particular
0: herbicide. There's this other element that what they're producing are uh, volatile products, which are therefore going on other people's crops at the same time, which forces others to buy their products. And that was a story that kind of unfolded as I was writing. The problem with the system
1: is that farmers were told, basically, all you need to spray is glyphosate, our herbicide. You don't need to spray a bunch of different chemicals, and you can spray it throughout the growing season. That was what was different. You know, before this, you couldn't spray glyphosate on your crops because it'd kill the crops. Now they're genetically engineered to tolerate it. You can spray glyphosate all day long. And we see this explosion in herbicide use on farms, not ultimately in the United States, but where these technologies go, Brazil and other places, the same thing. And not surprisingly, we start seeing weeds, as nature does, developing resistance to these herbicides. And honestly, it's really remarkable. It's very early, like 1999, within like three years, we're starting to see weeds that are adapting as one would, to this pressure that's being put on, this selective pressure. They're genetically changing to develop resistance to Roundup. So you've got a problem, which Monsanto refuted in the early years, said this is not happening. I'm here at Ohio State, one of the bleeding agricultural institutions in the entire country, really the world. And the scientists here were saying, look, we're seeing weeds developing resistance. And Monsanto would come in here and say, no, that's not happening, even though, of course, it was. The problem is farmers aren't stupid and they could find very quickly that weeds were developing resistance. And so Monsanto developed a new technology that would allow crops to tolerate multiple different types of herbicides. You can spray Roundup, but if there's weeds that have developed resistance to Roundup, you can also spray a chemical called dicamba. And this is what you were talking about. This emerged around 2015. People started spraying during the growing season, hot temperatures, not just glyphosate on their crops, but also dicamba, because they had bought seeds that had both tolerances. And what you saw with dicamba is that it was very volatile. It could vaporize, drift off target. I mean, if you pause to think about this, it created just havoc in hot temperatures across the country where farmers who had not bought that technology are now getting hit with drift of this herbicide onto their property. And as I reveal in the book, and I'll end here, you know, I went to the trials as this unfolded, got to see these corporate documents for the first time in the gallery of the courthouse. It was very clear that Monsanto A knew this was going to drift, and B saw it as a sales strategy. That if you don't buy our seeds that are going to give your crops resistance to dicamba, well, you might get hit by this drift thing. And confidential documents make very clear that they saw this as a sales potential for their seeds. So To bring this full circle, really, this is a story of going back in time. Dicamba is a chemical from the 1960s. You know, Roundup is 1970s. And I started seeing that like where we started is where we're going back to. We're promised this kind of futuristic drones and it's all digital farming. But in fact, it's tethered to a chemical past that is so far past and is also quite toxic. It gave me a lot of pause, and I didn't know what I was going to see, but I think for me, I was kind of alarmed what I was watching because it seemed like such a system out of whack, such a system that was broken.
0: And it seems like Monsanto had developed such an internal culture of denial and rebuttal, and obviously they attracted a deluge of lawsuits uh, and challenges, but the culture seemed to not to react in a positive way, or so it seems. I think the thing I come to learn, I was able to
1: get inside the company, talk to people at the highest levels, sometimes off the record, sometimes on the record. It's amazing how in one office you can hear somebody who you really it's hard not to believe that they believe very sincerely that this is about feeding the world, that this is about positive things. There are going to be some externalities, as they would put it. On the other hand, you can see people in this story, as you said, that are part of a corporate culture that was about profits, you know, before anything else. The best example of this from the book was a a document I came across in 1969. The company was selling a chemical called PCBs and it had become very clear that this was extremely toxic. It was a global contaminant. In fact, we're all still exposed to this compound. And in that document, the executive who's trying to decide, well, what should we do with this compound now that we know that it's so toxic? He literally handwrites, he says, well, maybe we should just sell the hell out of this as long as we possibly can and do nothing else. And, you know, I always note that this particular executive went back and sell the hell out of it. He, he added that in. It wasn't like a, you know, it was a very deliberate thought here. And I think that goes to your point. What I started seeing was the ways in which product pipelines became like tunnel vision for these folks. You know, the possibility of glyphosate not being, an, no, it's too profitable. So what are we going to do? we got to make sure that we push these things, even when there's signs that there might be a problem. The precautionary principle, which we do not really follow here in the United States, was something that was an afterthought, I think, in many cases. Last thing I want to say on this, though, is that I think Bayer is different slightly. I've had a very different cultural experience getting inside Bayer. When I wrote this book, they came and reached out to me, you know, and I can hear people saying, well, maybe this is a greenwashing campaign or whatever it might be. But what I've come to see is that there are really sincere people inside that company who really think that there's a way to redesign, as they put it, moving from chemistry to biology, to respecting life, to stopping this kind of war on nature model. The question is, are they gonna be able to convince the other people I've met in the company who are you know, tied to the board and very much looking at the next quarter and that kind of thing? And I think I'm, we were talking about being 41, this is what I am now. And I'm just more aware of how you can have really great people in these companies who are being sincere and trying to do good things. And yet the pressure to meet that bottom line may mean that those visions never really make it to the forefront.
0: I was going to ask you if you felt that the development of Monsanto was something that was kind of particular to a way in the kind of U.S. corporate culture and how U.S. companies specifically were developing. From what you're saying, some parts of Bayer are kind of more enlightened than maybe Monsanto was. But still within Bayer, there are those that still kind of believe in the old way, which Monsanto pushed for many, many years. Is Quite a degree of support even now, even uh, within U.S. governmental organizations around uh, using these kinds of products.
1: Yes. I joked about this book being called No One's Watching, you know, to center the story not so much on the corporation, which you could argue is kind of doing what corporations do and allowed to just do their thing. I, honestly, having written about Coke and Walmart and Bank of America and Monster, and now I've written about all these different companies through my career, like the one takeaway is, if you don't put a rule in front and say, no, this is what you're going to have to do, and we want to see you meet that, you don't see the kind of innovation that we need in an era of climate change. And I think that you see this very clearly in this book. It's a takeaway. We live in a moment very much of voluntary pledges, of ESG, which was, if you look at the origins of ESG, you know, environment and social governance kind of standards, going back to the 2007, 2006 period, it was, if you read the kind of charter about what this was all going to be about, it's about letting corporations make the choices, let them decide. And we've seen how that works. You know, there's a study I'll mention here that came out by a consulting firm here in the United States. They looked at something like 300 of the top companies in the economy. These were big players and their pledges to meet various sustainability targets. And you know what they found in terms of the success rate of meeting those targets? They found that only four percent of those pledges were met on environmental issues. This was a 2019 publication I was reading. So when people are saying net zero and carbon neutrality and all this stuff, I think it goes directly back to your point. The problem is we're not going to get there, and the book suggests this unless you say, "Here's the standard. You cannot do this, or there will be penalties." Because I think what we're seeing is kind of hemming and hawing, and here's a promise that they don't meet. People forget that they made the promise, but it looks good at the moment. They kind of get the journalists off their back. And I also don't want to be too cynical here. Those people that I was just talking about in the firm are working hard. They're trying to design some things and they're believing, but at the end of the day, we're not meeting those targets. And I think you can see that very clearly in the ag story. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency here, seeing these dicamba incidences happening and literally saying, the incidences continue to be at the same level, if not worse and saying we should probably reconsider whether dicamba should be used during the growing season, the way that it is. And, you know, I just want to scream at when you're writing this to say, yes, set a rule. It's unconscionable to have a farmer who calls me, by the way, in the middle of the country here. And this is a true story. You know, calls me during harvest He's an organic soybean farmer, which means he does not have any genetically engineered traits in his in his field. And by the way, if you know anything about farmers, and I spend a lot of time with them here, they don't stop their tractor during a good day when the weather's nice, when they got to do, you know, harvest and everything else. But that's how frustrated some of these folks are, because they say, Bart, please talk about this. Because only 2% of people in the US are farmers. It's like a voice crying in the wilderness, especially when you get down to the organic market here saying, I'm getting hit and there's no recourse. Back to your point, EPA, it's currently legal for this to happen. But there are public hearings going on. The EPA is requesting comment. I think if anyone has a voice that's out there listening to this, should look into this. Don't just take my word, read about the story of Dicamba and say, you know, what rules should be in place to protect those farmers who have no protection right now from this drift. I think that's something that's a, a
0: clear social justice issue for our time. Another cynical take from it, I thought, was that, you know, if you have a very good uh, legal counsel and spend a lot of money on that, that you may well protect yourself from many, many future problems. At least that's the way it appeared for Monsanto. Is that fair or is that too cynical? The thing that,
1: all, that stunned me after looking at this hundred plus year history... And that was, I took about a decade to do this, right? And I was on the ground. I was i was inside the company at times. I was in the archives, being able to see these corporate documents, confidential things and other things. The tort litigation, which emerged around Agent Orange, you know, veterans trying to get compensation or PCBs. The thing that struck me by the end is that all these people were still harmed. Whether my father's cancer, for example, was caused by Agent Orange or not is something that we'll never be able to scientifically prove. But If indeed dioxin, which we know can cause these types of cancers, one scientist who's one of the leading scientists in the country called it, you know, the Darth Vader of chemical compounds. I don't even need to use scientists. 1965 document from Dow to Monsanto, confidential, we now have it released, says this is the most toxic compound we've ever seen. The way that Torit works is it's after the fact. You know, the damage is done and now people are trying to pay for their medical bills or in some cases just, you know, make sure their kids are taken care of. That, to me, doesn't seem like justice, which goes back to the rules, you know, recognizing that you have, especially in this moment, you have to come in and say, innovate. That is unconscionable to do what's happening here. And if you don't, then unfortunately, you're going to go out of business. The title of the book, Seed Money, was driven by a central question, which was, how did they protect that seed money to become a seed empire for that long, given these controversies that they faced? And the answer was they did have a great team of lawyers who, you know, in the case of Agent Orange, all the veterans that were exposed, tens of thousands of veterans, they settled for, it's escaping me the exact number right now, but I want to say it's like $170, $180 million. And that was split between seven manufacturers. I got details of that particular settlement. They were in the judge's quarters. The lawyers were on both sides, cheersing champagne. And you could say for the plaintiffs, I think they felt good that they had gotten something right out of this. But the defendants must have felt amazing. They had basically said, here's a global contaminant issue, goes all the way to Vietnam, and you've gotten out with a few million dollars on this? When Bayer bought Monsanto, this litigation on top on top of each other has really hit them hard. And you may say it's having an impact in a real way. Mainly what happened was the Roundup litigation, links between non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and glyphosate exposure. Juries decided that there were major settlements or major uh, verdicts to be made there and linking non-Hodgkin's lymphoma to glyphosate. I think this is a very tricky scientific question. I think it's being sorted out. I'll, I'll let people go and look at this. But Monsanto's stock price just plummeted. It went from about a market cap before they merged in 2018 of $120 billion to about $60 billion in a matter of months. They were worth, Bayer was, the same amount of money that they paid to purchase Monsanto. You do
0: also go into the agricultural incentives, which governments have. And uh, you could argue farmers, too, in terms of wheat killers reducing the need for labor, the potential for wider food production with these methods, although that's now in question when I was in Brazil on field reporting for this in the cerrado,
1: or talking about the cerrado, talking about the the soybean, these massive soybean fields and everything else. This wasn't like anti-GMO or pro-GMO folks. I mean, people on both sides, every now and then it's just kind of an open joke. This is enough. Do you think this is feeding the world? You know, this is about business because most of these crops were going to a fairly inefficient mechanism for feeding a planet. You know, if you think about the landmass that's being used and the scale of these soybean and corn farms versus... And, you know, most of that going to fodder and a kind of energy and efficient method of using land to produce food. And yet it's like, no, 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 it's all about productivity. I think that's a mantra that you see in the book that I tried to kind of show has a history um, that goes back to the Green Revolution, has very much a Cold War, kind of the U.S. versus the world. Kind of let's show them that we can grow more food as a kind of visual spectacle of American capitalism. Look at the places where this Green Revolution went and you can think about pockets of poverty and famine that are still exist today. We realize that it's really questions of distribution, about addressing the fundamental issues of poverty. It's not that the idea that feeding the world is inherently a productivity issue, I think is its own myth. And that became clear as day to me after 10 years of looking at this. Rethinking our food system is not just about how do we grow more per acre of corn. That's what business would like us to think, because that's an easier undertaking than solving the fundamentals of poverty and inequality that go back to colonial times and deeper history there. I just remember several moments on the trail where people that are like kind of pro-GMO or whatever, whatever they might be, it was just laughable. you really think this is about feeding the world? Please, let's get real.
0: More recently, you've written another book which looks at other big U.S. companies and how how they developed. The Monsanto book does raise the issue of trust in the sense that can you trust what governments say about safety? Do you think that there's more to come, that there might be more revelations coming from other areas or from other agrochemical products or from from other companies?
1: I teach the history of the U.S. here. So there's a site that I use with my students here that is the EPA website of the entire country. It's called ECHO, Enforcement and Compliance History Online. I can't believe I was able to pull that together. Wonky, you know, as any all agencies here in the U.S., uh, acronym ECHO. It's looking at the compliance of every single business in the United States to the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and RICRA, which is the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act that regulates toxic substances, among other things. When I started teaching this years ago, we'd go in there and it would just be startling to me. I'd see companies that had been non-compliant for three years, significantly non-compliant with RICRA, you know, regulating toxic substances right along a river that I live on with my kids. And I would say, What gives? You know, how is this happening? And I talked to a lot of uh, legal scholars here who said, oh, Bart, yeah, welcome welcome to reality. And that's where I started thinking about a book that's called No One's Watching. This is not to blame an EPA that I think tries very hard to do, has helped me as a scholar get documents and things I could not otherwise get. But understaffed, despite what certain parties in our country think, When you see all these flags, you'll realize, like, how is it possible that anyone could go and make sure that all this is being handled and regulated as well as it could, given that the agency doesn't have the resources it really needs to do some of those things? You know, for me, that was an eye-opening moment, just looking at how many companies were just allowed for year after year with no formal penalty to just kind of be violating the laws openly and even putting it on a database, you know, just saying, that's how much they think about how stiff the penalties are going to be. And so that goes back to the firm, the rule there that I think if we're waiting for these companies to change from the inside, I think we're going to be waiting too long. I remember sitting down with a former CEO and chairman of Bank of America, one of the largest banks in the world, one of the biggest banks in the U.S. He basically made an argument for the fact that they needed to be regulated. If I decide, Bart, to, to go down your climate path that you're telling me, you know, I'm not going to invest in this type of coal or whatever it is, you know what Wells Fargo is going to do, another big bank here in the U.S.? They're just going to invest in that. So we need rules across the board. And I thought, think, I just said,
0: aha moment. Yes, that's true. Could you just give us a bit of a summary of what the overall environmental and human impacts that Monsanto have had over the world? I wrote a
1: history of Coca-Cola. I think everyone listening to this could think of that as one of the most visible corporations in the world. I think what made Monsanto so startling to me was that it was everywhere just like Coca-Cola, but we just didn't see it. And we didn't acknowledge its presence. And that's a danger because of how many of these products are embedded in our lives. I mean, I'm looking around, I'm thinking about the PCBs. This was an insulating material that was used on almost everything. A global contaminant, they were finding PCB in oceans, you know, far removed from where we were here in the US. Monsanto was the only producer in the United States of this. It was the largest global producer of PCBs. There were a few manufacturers around the globe, but Monsanto, in terms of liability, was basically the player, the one that was producing this compound in artificial Christmas trees, in shoe polish, in receipts, in the paint in the linings of our pools, in the paint that lined our silos, and then come to find out in the 60s, not doing our due diligence beforehand, before releasing all this, it turns out it's an incredibly toxic compound. Right now, public schools are trying to clean it out of their facilities. The Ohio River here is contaminated with PCBs. You can't fish in certain areas because PCBs that were banned here in 1976, just to be clear. That's how persistent these compounds are. We're talking a lot about forever chemicals and PFAS and things, but PCBs are a part of that. I think that's the other thing we're going to start realizing is just how pervasive it is. You know, whether you want to get an organic kale or whatever, just the fact that this stuff has the ability to last in the environment so long in water systems and other things and can permeate no matter what choice. This is all about, you know, because we like this argument in the U.S., of choice you make. We're working on a documentary, and one of the things we're going to do is I'm just going to test my blood just to see which, how many of these chemicals, many of which have been banned, are still somehow a part of who I am. And that's where I think it gets to the scale of what you're talking about. And when it comes to agricultural chemicals, the, the real damaging story here is that the argument was Roundup Ready was going to mean that all we needed to use was glyphosate. And at the time, the argument was that glyphosate was actually the healthiest and safest herbicide out there. Of course, the new science is suggesting something else. But even if you're saying, you know, I'm not convinced that Roundup or glyphosate is particularly harmful... The issue is that this resistance issue means that we're going back to all those other chemicals to beat back the weeds that are developing resistance because of the overuse of those chemicals. And by the way, no surprise here, genetically engineered dicamba crops, you're starting to see weeds that can have tolerance to dicamba. It's it's, it's a cycle. We're using more chemicals than ever in terms of pesticides, herbicides. This is technology from the 50s, 60s. And so back to your thing, what should we be worried about? I have no idea what the interactions at low levels in our food system of multiple layers of chemicals on top of each other are. What I can tell you is that some of the people in Bayer agree with me and say, that doesn't seem like a smart way to go forward. We've got to go back to biology and thinking about how we can grow things with a respect for life, as opposed to this kind of war against nature. And the last thing I'll say about that is it is a war against nature. And it was a mindset that was a product of the time that it came out. Mention, I said 1940s, right? World War II. It was a product of blunt force instruments, annihilation, this is the era of atomic age. These are pests. Even the terminology was kind of militarized, annihilate. That's not a way to approach nature. I think that at least touches on, I think, the scale of what we're dealing with and why I think someone should read about Monsanto because of how pervasive these compounds are, how central they are to this food system. And frankly, without some rules,
0: in my opinion, we're going to be in a really tough spot, I think. Thanks to Bart Elmore for his time. As usual on our podcast blurb, you can find our suggested reading, which includes a link to Bart's book, Seed Money, and links to some of his other recent books. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another interview. And if you enjoyed listening, please do give us a review. They really do help. Or otherwise, feel free to get in touch with us directly to give us feedback, or if you think there are issues you think we should be looking into. Thanks for listening, and until soon.